This episode is sponsored by Westrock, a global leader in paper and packaging. Westrock connects people to products in ways that are responsible, right-sized, renewable, and recyclable. For more information, please visit westrock.com. From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCowry, still social distancing here at home in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, the science of corporate biodiversity, the life cycle of reusables versus disposables, how Dell is repairing its circular strategy, and how coronavirus will affect four key environmental issues. It's nothing to sneeze at this week on 350. It's May 22nd, 2020, the beginning of a three-day weekend here in these United States. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. Joining me full of holiday spirit from Midland Park, New Jersey, is Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Yay! It is a beautiful day here, I have to say. I have to give you that one. We finally have full-on spring here, and uh, I'm really enjoying being outside. It's wonderful. I've been eating outside every night for the past week, and that's sort of my my spring, summer, uh, fall uh, habit, and I'm happy to be back to it. How are you doing? Uh, doing okay. Living the pandemic dream here in Oakland. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, looking forward to a little bit of a of a, it's a different kind of weekend, at least in terms of a little bit longer and probably less less to do uh, work wise. I'm I'm going to be building a bamboo fence in my uh, on the hill in my backyard so we could have a sort of a hand railing as we go down a sometimes slippery hill slippery slope as it were <laughs> <laughs> and uh you know always look forward to a little a little physical labor and the, the keyword there is a little <laughs> well we had some good projects this past week uh, circularity 20 digital took place on tuesday a four-hour uh, online event. Um, sort of, this was the week, original week that we were going to be doing our Circularity 20 event in Atlanta. That's now been scheduled for uh, the last week in August, August 25th to 27th. And of course, that too will be virtual, taking place uh, a little bit in Atlanta, teeny, teeny event in Atlanta, but uh, mostly online. But uh, yeah, we that was a, a fun event this week. Uh, we had several panels and uh, group discussions, five or six people. We had well over a thousand people tuning in and, and joining in on the on the conversations. And uh, I'm sort of liking our digital strategy, uh, you mm -hmm. know, as we move forward. And it's not just an ex, uh, expanded webinar. It's it's actually an engaging. It can be, and and I think we're showing it can be an engaging mm -hmm. kind of experience. Yeah. You know, for me, there's two things that are really, that I love about it is that I feel like we can get more audience questions involved, which is something I've always wanted to do at our live events. I mean, we can certainly do it in the breakouts, but um, from the main stage, so we have more of an opportunity to do that. So a lot more engagement with our audience. And then the breakouts that we, we played with um, this week were really 
quite intriguing. I just being able to go in there and, and have sort of a, a conversation about a topic with six or seven people and then move around and report back. It was, it was quite a, a very cool format. We were doing some experiments and I'm sure we're going to fine tune a lot of things, but I liked it. Yeah. And as always, the GreenBiz audience, the GreenBiz community rose to the occasion. They just jump in, introduce themselves and start sharing opinions. So we always love that. But you know what? Let's share our opinions about the Week in Review. So Heather, you have two stories that I think we should talk about this week. Uh, two great company-oriented stories, one about AB InBev and one about uh, Intel. Um, let's start with the AB InBev. Uh, talk about their uh, their quest for agile, sustainable development. Ezgi uh, Barcinez is a vice president of global sustainability at AB InBev, the, the beer company. And uh, she was on my badass women list, and I wanted to talk to her for a while. And the badass list being um, sort of this thing that I do for International Women's Day every year that that celebrates and mentions uh, women who are championing the sustainability cause. She's one of them, um, and I I had been asking for an interview for a while, and I finally got it. And uh, basically, I used it to get a little bit of an update on what they're doing now. Right. So what 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 I thought fascinating was her her sort of connect the dots to talk about what's happening in the pandemic and how they're working with their farmers and supply chain partners to help help them keep going. She called it a stress test for sustainable development, really sort of forcing, the word she used was compelling, a company of, of their size to think about all of the community members that are part of their value chain and how you flex your, your relationship with them. So that's what that, that particular title meant. Um, we talked about a lo- lot of other things, but maybe I'll pause and let you uh, let me let you tell me why you picked that particular uh, thing. Well, I, I'm always curious on these things around how much of this is uh, philanthropy or do good or do goodism, as I think some people would call it, and how much of this is really related to solid business uh, rationale and benefits. Um, you know, as you as you think about uh, you know all these different things and the sustainable development goals, which are about the greater good. Uh, but is there a business uh, rationale for this? Well, so yeah, I mean, big time. They buy, make, and sell over ninety percent of their products locally. Locally, so around I mean, the communities around the meeting world. in Colombia, in like everything is very local, very local to that community. And if they don't take care of that community and help them. Uh, build their livelihoods, help them be more financially stable, help those farmers be better stewards of the land, but at the same time have a have a have a living. Then no one's going to buy their beer. I mean, let's let's put it out there. So I think um, for her, for for a company like maybe there's different. I mean, definitely different cases for different companies, right? But this is a company where because that model is in place, they have to do this. So they spent a lot of time how to figuring out how to support their farmers. What what's going on right now with the pandemic is, uh, and I've heard this from other organizations as well, is they're figuring out how to to do virtual field visits, right? So helping them uh, keep the progress and keep bet- managing their fields better right now, even though they can't go and check check in on them, um, making sure that the the barley buying centers and and the places for the for where the raw materials are traded are up and running. Making sure that they they are still there, so that the cash flow isn't isn't shut off. So, for them, it really is, I think, 
part and parcel of their business is that they have to think this way. I would also imagine that uh, part of the strategy is that if it's like any other uh, place in the world, there's there's lots and lots of microbrews and local craft brewers that are mm-hmm. cropping up, and yeah. uh, and and this is how the the big multinational, mm-hmm. you know, big mm-hmm. bad company stays relevant, stays competitive, mm-hmm. stays uh, liked I- in the local community as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And what, what the other thing that uh, that I particularly enjoyed about this interview is that I love thinking about and talking to and reporting on startups. And here in the United States, we're extremely um, well. Uh, Silicon Valley centric, right? We think startup, Silicon Valley. Woo. Well, they have this um, accelerator program. So like a lot of the big companies have accelerators where they're going out and investing in, in companies that can help with technology. Um, they're, they're, the AB Embed one is called the 100 plus sustainability accelerator. So what I enjoyed also was a couple of the, the conversation. I had, a, uh, we talked about a couple of the startups and they're both, they were not from the U.S., Mind you, they were they were from the the economies and regions in which they were doing the business. So Columbia, EW Tech um, from Columbia, they have a replacement for soda, caustic soda for helping with industrial cleaning processes. Um, they're piloting this in Columbia. So I, I learned a couple, you know, about a couple of startups in these regions that are really making a difference. And I, I love thinking about that because I, you know, I would love to see more. Uh, international innovation coming back to the United States, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't all work the other way. Yep. Well, let's move over to the other story. Uh, and you did mention Silicon Valley, and this is about Intel and their 2030 commitments. I'm just curious, you know, companies make commitments all the time. And, and right now there's a, a wave of companies that are doing their 2025, 2030, 2035, and on and on. Why did you pick Intel to write about this particular tranche of commitments? I'm glad you asked. <laughs> yeah, we, we get bombarded. And I, I, I have to, just, a, just a moment on that. We look at them. We look at those uh, reports and think about and look at the progress because we, we celebrate it as well, but we can't report on them all. So the reason I picked this one up is because Intel, for the first time, and as far as I know, I haven't seen anyone else do this, they have what they're calling global challenges as part of their commitments. They And these challenges require collaboration with, quote, industries, governments, and communities to pull off. What makes this interesting is be, they're embedded in their, their 2030 commitments, meaning they need to make them. Intel for a very, very long time has put put basically its financial mouth where the, the commit, its commitments are. So for a long time, I think since like, oh, like at least 10 years, they have ba- basically um, incented their management team on making these their, their, their uh, sustainability commitments. So you're, they're part of their bonus is tied to it. And in this, this fiscal year, I think it's tied to renewable energy benchmark. They have to, they have to hit 75%. Um, and then also they've got a big water restoration um, initiative going on. If they don't make those goals, then the, the people that get bonuses in that company don't get their full bonus, right? So that says a lot. That, that makes you think as, a, as an employee very differently about how you're going to treat a, a commitment. So the global ones that they've committed to, um, they're kind of 
they're in a different, they're in different categories. One is very health oriented, revolutionize health and safety with technology, right? So part of this is the pandemic response technology initiative that they created. Um, they, they're, you know, trying to help accelerate the development of um, vaccines and cure and, and treatments for the, the COVID-19 um, disease, right? So that's part of it. Um, they also are working as, as part of this one on safety for autonomous vehicles. So that's one of them, right? That's one of the commitments. Uh, the second one is to make technology fully inclusive and expand digital readiness, right? So um, the, the technology companies, for very many good reasons, have uh, been very long focused on sort of uh, the issue of inclusion, right? And part of the reason they they are is because they they had a really bad track record on it, right? The the levels of uh, percentages of women and minorities in senior positions at tech companies still leave those numbers leave a lot to be desired. Intel um, has been spending a lot of time on this. And now it's saying, hey, yeah, we're doing this. But you know what? We all, everyone, and it doesn't have to be just tech companies, should be disclosing on this in the same way. Let's let's go out and find an index, a way of measuring this, track and disclosing this, that that's more consistent. So it would help um, us talk about it in, uh, in the same way that our competitors are talking about it, and it would help the financial community investors understand exactly what we're saying. You know, kind of a good good idea. So you know, like you're comparing apples to apples. So the the last one I want to talk about, which is probably the one that's most exciting for us, is to achieve carbon neutral computing. Wow. <laughs> which, well, yeah, I know. Wow. I mean, I, I have to be, say, I, I don't know exactly what that means. I, I need to see more detail behind that one, but. Basically, they're saying we're all talking about creating a, a far more sustainable and energy efficient PC, something that eliminates, you know, bad water consumption, too much uh, emissions, et cetera, et cetera. We, we've been talking about this a long time. P.S. With us all moving online, the emissions associated with semiconductor manufacturing and cloud computing are only going to keep rising unless we address it in a bit better way. So. Um, they've put that in in their their next ten years of commitments and to to figure this out. Like, hey, let, you know what? Let's really work on this NPS. Let's work on it together. So, reducing emissions for semiconductor manufacturing and cloud computing, and on using technology to combat mm -hmm. the negative impact of climate change. This is where I get a little bit skeptical. Small, small case of hives here, um, mm -hmm. mm. because you know companies <laughs> that. Uh, you know, I've heard this before from tech companies saying that they want to uh, use their computing for good and they're going to measure, you know, the reductions of uh, the impact. So years and years ago, it was around uh, reduced paper use, although I don't know the paper use really got reduced all that much, at least in the early years. Um, you know, and, and the benefits of that, of creating PDFs versus printing things out and all that. Here's the problem. If you're going to take credit for those kinds of things, you also have to take the blame for using algorithms to increase the efficiency of oil production or coal mining or anything else that that is bad. Mm -hmm. You know, in the same way that you get to take credit for people being able to work from home and shop from home who don't might not otherwise be able to get out, you also have to take the blame for cybercrime and child pornography and all these other totally things. Great. And this is where I think it's a little bit of a cherry pick, with all due respect mm -hmm. to our friends at mm -hmm. Intel. And it's not just Intel, it's a, I think tech in general. So I would, uh, using technology to combat the negative impact of climate change, 
I'm all for it. I don't know how much these companies get credit for it. Um, but, uh, you know, this is where put it out there, uh, you know, let's discuss it and have a rational conversation about it. I'm all for that. Yep. The specifics of these commitments are not necessarily the, the most exciting part of this. The most exciting part of this, this thing for me was that they are making these global commitments and making them dependent on others. If they can't go out and work, play well with others and make them happen, then they're not going to make them. Yeah. Well, speaking of things that are a little bit, I don't know, controversial or uh, for some people maybe dubious, there's a, a, this third story I want to talk about this this week. is It's titled uh, How Coronavirus Will Affect Four Key Environmental Issues by George Nassus. Uh, George is uh, uh, director of the Master's in Sustainability Management at DePaul University's College of Business, and he's he also is a consultant and does a number of other things in the space. He's written a few articles for us before, but he writes sort of uh, monthly, I think, essay, and and sometimes we uh, we we pick him up. And this is one about looking at any you know he says are there any ways that the pandemic has a positive outcome. And he looks at four major environmental issues: the overconsumption of natural resources, diminishing quantity and quality of fresh water, climate change, and rapid population growth, and and the benefits of the of the pandemic. And I I know he's this is you know he's not saying that the pandemic is good, but just what the unintended positive consequences are around consumption, around climate, around fresh water and population. And I have to say, you know, this is this is challenging for me again in the same way that maybe the Intel one was because, yeah, you know, climate emissions are down, consumption is down, fresh water use, I don't know, maybe... Um, he says that we should see a decrease in water consumption worldwide as a result of, of um, people, homebound people tend to be more efficient with water when it's consumed at home. And then uh, population, um, that the population growth is is slowing and offset by the death rate due to the coronavirus. I don't know that this is a conversation that we should be having, frankly. Uh, first of all, this is temporary, and you know we're already seeing, for example, uh, just uh, this weekend, I know over the next few weeks, uh, gasoline consumption and oil consumption are starting to tick back up. Now that people are, things are starting to open, people are starting to get back on the road, and at some point people will start flying again. Is this something to celebrate or not? You know, if, if you... You know, if you get sick and are at home and th and therefore spend a lot less money on going out to meals or movies or buying things, and it helps your finances, I mean, how do you think about that? You got sick for, for crying out loud. You know, so I don't want to celebrate. <laughs> I don't think anybody wants to celebrate the pandemic. Uh, but and so looking at these, and and and, and George is hardly the per only person doing this. So I think. One of the reasons we I think we ran this is that it, this is another conversation we should uh, be consider be having about how how do we think about the reduction in carbon emissions right now? Um, obviously, we we're, we're showing that it can be done, but at what cost? Yeah, for me, the 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 overconsumption one is the one that I do feel. Um confident that we'll have different conversations moving ahead. I feel like, yeah, people are thinking about what, do I really need that thing? Like I can't go out and buy that new thing, that new 
outfit right now for spring? And where am I going to wear it if I, if I do buy it? Um, like, so that would be the argument about, about, about buying it online, you know, and continuing that. I do feel like even in my own immediate sphere of friends that people are thinking about their habits, their, their consumption habits in, in a bit different way. Maybe they're going to repair this thing instead of going out and buying a new thing. Um, we talked at the beginning about the projects we're doing on our own at our house. We're, we're improving our, you know, like that's just, it's a different, I don't know. I think people have, will have a, a different philosophy about how they, they spend their money moving forward. And so for me, this, that one may be the one that, that could change what's, what's happening moving forward. The sophistication of environmental monitoring tools continues to grow, with satellites, sensors, and artificial intelligence all playing key roles in helping organizations gain a better understanding of the potential impact that their actions may have on the Earth. One of the highest profile new examples is the planetary computer announced by cloud computing giant Microsoft in mid-April. A key partner in that effort is Esri, a market leader in geographic information systems, software, and other services. Joining me now to talk more about that collaboration is Dawn Wright, Chief Scientist at ESRI. Dawn, hi. Ah, hi there. Hi there, Heather. It's a real pleasure to speak with you today. Great to have you on GreenBiz 350. So I, I wanted to start with uh, a question about the focus of the new partnership. It, 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 according to the, the stuff I've been reading, it's on helping marry the potential of machine learning with geospatial data. So can you help translate what that means? What potential applications could that enable? So machine learning is about making uh, big data or data that is uh, very hard to handle or to understand, making that more understandable. And a lot of geospatial data fits in that category. A lot of geospatial data is big. So if you think about satellite images, or models of the topography of the Earth's surface, the, uh, the highs and elevation, uh, the low valleys, uh, just what the landscape or the seascape looks like, or even anything that has a location attached to it. If it's a latitude or a longitude, if you're walking around with your phone and you are taking pictures of uh, beautiful butterflies or taking pictures of of what you see around your community, that is geospatial data. And if you get millions and billions and trillions of those observations that you're trying to uh, organize, uh, that then it becomes uh, big data. And machine learning is a way for uh, machines to actually uh, organize and to help us make sense of that data. So that's where we come into play in terms of our partnership with Microsoft, because both Microsoft and Esri actually have sophisticated algorithms, uh, machine learning algorithms or recipes that help us to make sense of these data. But Microsoft has the cloud, the Azure cloud. So we are bringing our algorithms together into Microsoft's cloud and working together on uh, all of these different types of biodiversity projects for sure, but even the COVID-19 uh, observations, 
there are people working on climate change, uh, mapping and examples, trying to make uh, predictions in terms of how are things going to change uh, as the temperatures uh, raise, as, uh, the, as the earth gets warmer. All of that comes together. So let's stick with biodiversity for a moment here. Why is geospatial data so important for understanding biodiversity? Can you give me an example of, of an application? So one of the, the best applications of geospatial in terms of biodiversity is the map of biodiversity importance. And this is a project that NatureServe, which is an environmental nonprofit, has been doing uh, with a Microsoft AI for Earth grant and using our technology. And basically what the map of biodiversity importance does is to show you where there are species, species of birds, species of uh, reptiles, uh, any type of animal species or plant species that is under threat in terms of near extinction or its habitat, the places where these animals and plants live is so uh, damaged that we're going to, to lose uh, these species. And this map tells us where there are conflicts in terms of where these species are located uh, in comparison to where we have our roads and bridges, where our urban areas are, uh, even where our parks are because this also tells us where we need to extend our parks so that we can better protect these species. Or if we're planning to, to build new infrastructure, it gives us what the, what the trade-offs are, say, between wild grasslands and mineral exploration, or where we need to make new roads or bridges, and how that conflicts with, with wildlife. So with this map of biodiversity importance, we can weigh our actions against the costs or the feasibilities or the capacities uh, of our communities to actually have areas that are in harmony uh, with nature. So we want to have areas that we, we can live in without destroying uh, our biodiversity. So Dawn, how might a company use that technology you were just talking about, right, to guide its strategy. I know you, we work with hundreds of thousands of organizations. Talk to me about how a business, a company, um, could really use your software to, to guide their corporate sustainability strategy or, frankly, any other business decision for that matter. Well, our software can be used to, uh, to map or to track anything that is uh, geospatial within a company's operations. So let's say you are a real estate development company or a transportation company or an environmental consulting firm. Uh, these are all uh, examples where you could use our software to uh, map where you are uh, sending your, your products or services. You can uh, use our software to, to track your uh, emissions in terms of your carbon emissions. You can use it to, even in terms of setting up a dashboard that if you want to have a sustainability performance dashboard for your company, uh, our software can help you to track how many pounds of electronic waste have been recycled, 
how many million pounds of particulate emissions you've saved in your, your trucking or your business travel, or maybe you have company cars and you want to be able to track the CO2 emissions there, how many million kilowatts of hours saved in the building where your company is, how many gallons of water saved, all of those types of operational uh, variables. We have the uh, decision-making and mapping software and visualization software to help you to do that. So I'm going to switch gears on you now. Uh, you're an ocean scientist by training. So Yes. Yeah. So what can geospatial data tell us about the oceans? And why should we be looking more closely to the oceans for solutions to the climate crisis? Well, the, the oceans are basically, they cover 71% of the planet's surface. So you can't talk or think about anything to do with the Earth without thinking about the oceans. The oceans generate about 50% of the oxygen that we breathe. And in terms of biodiversity and biosphere, the oceans are home to about 50 to 80% of all the life on Earth. If you're talking about carbon emissions, the oceans absorb about 25% of all of the planet's CO2 emissions. And the oceans are capturing about 90% of the additional heat generated for, from those emissions. So the oceans are actually saving us right now. They're buying us valuable time in terms of the harmful impacts of climate change. Uh, the oceans are also on the front lines of paying the price for climate change because they are absorbing all of that additional heat. They are warming up. And so we're seeing uh, more frequent and more severe storms in the ocean. And when those come on shore, we see those as hurricanes. And of course, we know the, the horrible impact of that because the oceans are absorbing so much of the carbon dioxide, they're becoming more acidic. So they're, uh, that's causing damage to marine ecosystems, to the coral reefs, for example, to commercial fish stocks. So for all of us, that affects uh, the seafood that is uh, available to be on our table. So it's often said that the oceans are the foundation for life and for a healthy planet. Everything about the oceans is geospatial. In order for us to understand what's going on in the oceans, we map the sea surface, of course, but we also map everything that we can underneath the surface and on the ocean floor, and all of it is three-dimensional. So many of us now are mapping, involved in mapping the oceans from satellite, from ships, from robots or drones, as they're called. Uh, they, there is a whole network of, of buoys that is continually out in the oceans. There are thousands of them, over 4,000 uh, floats that are taking measurements all the time. And these are spatial measurements for every X, Y, and Z, or latitude, longitude, and depth. These uh, floats are out there recording what the temperature and the saltiness and the amount of oxygen content is in the ocean. So this is a huge effort that has been going on for decades, trying to, to map the watery part of our planet. And so far, we've only mapped about 15% of it because it's a very, very difficult thing to do. It's harder to see through the ocean, for instance, than it is to see through, through the atmosphere and through space. 
So this is why we have, as the saying goes, we have better maps of the surface of Mars and the moon and Venus than we have of our own ocean floor, for instance. And finally, because if you let me keep going, I'll talk for a whole hour about the ocean. (laughs) Finally, the ocean is one of the priority areas of the United Nations and their United Nations uh, Sustainable Development Goals. The ocean is the crux of SDG or Sustainable Development Goal 14. And the United Nations next year is launching a decade of ocean science for sustainable development to get at many of these problems. Well, I could talk for hours about the oceans too, but I'll, I'll leave it there. And I'll just thank you for your insights today on Green Biz 350. Great, thank you. Thank you, Heather. Really enjoyed it. As we said earlier in the program, we had our Circularity 20 digital event this week, a four-hour online event where we had a number of, of panels and conversations and breakouts, uh, including a conversation with Tom Zaki of Loop and TerraCycle on reusable packaging in the age of contagion, a panel that I ran on can recycled plastics survive low oil prices? And one that uh, you ran, Heather, called Repair, Resilience, and Customer Engagement. And then we had these virtual roundtable discussions, uh, five or six people in, a, in, in groups, and we had just a, a, a terrific time. But um, Heather, you pulled some, some clips from the, uh, the main stage, as it were, uh, <laughs> conversations. Um, and uh, tell us what you got. Yeah, so this was hard, <laughs> especially with the Tom Zaki one, because that was a really terrific conversation. Um, they hit a lot of uh, highlights, including you know how Loop is doing. Um, we talked; they talked a lot about the sanitation processes, right? So there's been this backlash against reusable containers, and uh, they did a good job. He, they, Lauren, Lauren Phipps was uh, his his interviewer. They did a good job of talking about sort of the occasions in which reusable is better than or different from uh, single-use plastics or a single-use packaging model. For me, one of the highlights, though, was uh, when Lauren asked how Loop, which is TerraCycle's uh, e-commerce division and which sells goods that are delivered in reusable packages, um, she asked Tom about how Loop thinks about life cycle assessments. In other words, when do they decide if something is better in a reusable container versus a single-use container? And, and, and how should other companies think about that? So the clip I'd love to play now is, is Tom's uh, explanation of how Loop thinks about life cycle assessment or LCA. I first want to preface this by saying reuse is not a silver bullet. In fact, I don't think there is a silver bullet out there. Um, uh, so it's not to say reuse is always going to be better, right? That's so important. But it can be better in a significant number of cases, uh, which is quite exciting. So if you think about um, the LCA theory, uh, basically, if you take a disposable pack, right? And let's say the bottom of my screen is uh, no impact. The top of my screen is maximum impact. So this vertical will be impact on the environment. You can measure that in carbon or, or other factors. And this horizontal will be the number of bottles I purchase every time I buy, say, a shampoo bottle. Now, in a normal, say, uh, disposable product, the impact is the same every time. It's a linear you know, line. And then uh, uh, no matter if I bought the second bottle or the 10th bottle, it's the same net impact. So it's going to be a, a straight line. In reuse, you get a curve. 
because you don't have to keep making the bottle each time. What you are doing is you make the bottle once, you divide that over the number of uses, and what you're really attaching is what you mentioned, which is transport cleaning and the um, let's call it environmental cost of resetting that uh, product. Now, here's where it becomes interesting. There are some package forms, and we've noticed this a lot with private label inclusions in Loop, where most of our retail partners have done anywhere from dozens to uh, even up to 100 private label products. And what they focus on is identifying private label products that are already in package forms that can be reused, just don't have a reuse infrastructure attached to them. Those are the best for the LCA because on the first use, they're equal to disposable equivalent. Think like salsa in glass, right? But on the second use, the reusable version is already better because the package had the exact same environmental cost to begin with. So those are where you, now you're, what you're missing there though, is you don't get to take advantage of the benefits of uh, improving the beauty and the function of the bottle. You're keeping the bottle exactly the same, you're just attaching a different back onto it. Now a more common example in Loop is what a lot of the consumer product companies, uh, like national brands and global brands are doing is maybe moving from say a plastic shampoo bottle for single use to a refillable version of that, say in aluminum or stainless steel. Now there, the aluminum bottle will be more expensive on the first use uh, than the disposable one. And in an example like shampoo, it breaks even on the third use. And then by the fifth use is about 50% better and then maximizes at about 75% better when you only look at the uh, packaging components. Everything else is honestly the same. The juice is the same, the filling is the same and so on. Now, the, cl the closure on this is that there are examples where it, couldn't, it wouldn't be better. And that would be an example where you say you have really heavy bulk, like 40 pounds of pet food or you know a big bag of potatoes that may be in an already incredibly efficient single-use package. And if you move that into a heavy, non-efficient, reusable pack, the reusable pack may potentially never be better than the disposable one. And this is where uh, science-based uh, results and looking at LCAs are critically, critically important um, to make sure we're doing things that are smart for the environment. And uh, there are no silver bullets. The other clip that I'd love to play for our audience is comes from Ed Boyd, and he is the Senior Vice President of Experience Design at Dell. So in other words, he thinks about product design and um, what goes into a, a thing to make it a, a better recyclable uh, recycling citizen or to, to have it be taken apart at the end of life and, and refurbished and used in different ways. And so for me, one of the most interesting points was, uh, was how the, the company's repair services and fit in with its overall circular economy strategy. So here's Ed Boyd. We design the products for service, you know, so it is a core requirement from our customers that they can service the, the, their equipment. As a matter of fact, our, our biggest part of our business is commercial. And so our commercial sales are so um, focused on service. But even within that, about changing batteries and, you know, fundamental components within the system, it isn't about, you know, completely tearing it down to each independent, independent material and, and melting that down and recycling it. It's all about service. So we're trying to, you know, that we've been working on service for a long time. Now we're working on, you know, the 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 full closed loop, you know, uh, stream. And we think they're really complementary. There's not a huge difference between, you know, designing for full disassembly, although there's some <laughs> there are some challenges uh, ahead of us that we're trying to conquer. But you know, from a design point of view, I don't think it's that difficult. Tool-wise, one of the things that, like, you know, we're doing right now is um, we have, you know, QR videos on how to, to service and take care and support. So a lot of our customers are doing their own support and service in field. So we, we do that. 
Um, we're building AR um, experiences now for the PC uh, portfolio. So now we so end users can take and have a tutorial with you know hold hold a mobile phone and walk through uh, an augmented reality you know um, walkthrough on how to how to service and take uh, take things apart and fix them. And so it's it's something that we're pretty passionate about making sure we want we want the technology to last as long as it possibly can, and um, and making sure that these. Um, instructions and guides are you know readily available uh, is a big part of you know the, the the company's mission this episode is sponsored by westrock a global leader in paper and packaging westrock connects people to products in ways that are responsible right size renewable and recyclable for more information please visit westrock Dot com. Before we let you go, a programming note. We've got two more terrific webcasts coming up next week. On Tuesday, the 26th, GreenBiz Transportation Analyst Katie Fehrenbacher will lead a session on how to successfully scale municipal fleets with accomplished fleet veterans from the Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, Smart City Columbus, the City of Oakland, and ChargePoint. And on Thursday the 28th, a young lady named Heather Clancy will lead a webcast titled This is Climate Tech, focusing on some of the many technologies that can tackle climate change while addressing a range of other social and environmental issues. Both are free and you can go to greenbiz.com webcasts for more information or to register. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find out more about the organization, the stories and events we mentioned this week. And while you're there, check out our free e-newsletters. We've got six of them that we publish every week. Go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters and you'll find out more about them. And as always, we love to hear from you. You can email us at 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of GreenBiz 350. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. To our U.S. audience, have a safe and healthy holiday weekend. And to everyone else, have a safe and healthy normal weekend to the extent that anything is normal anymore. And as always, thanks so much for tuning in.